Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Genesis in chapter number 7. Genesis 7, where we left off last week, we're working our way verse by verse, and I I am going to encourage you, I do this every week, but I'm really going to encourage you to open up a copy of Scripture. If you're sitting in one of the chairs and you don't have a copy of Scripture, maybe somebody that's in a pew that has a Bible in their pew rack can help you out there. We're going to be looking at a good bit of Scripture, especially at the front end of this message, and uh, I, I really think it will help you, it'll help all of us to see it for ourselves. And we're going to read responsively here in a few moments. Uh, But we're making our way through the first book of the Bible on Sunday mornings. Last week we left off at the end of Genesis chapter number 6. And Genesis is such a vital, foundational book of the Bible. It is, of course, the first book in the Bible. It's a book of beginnings. And we use that word Genesis even today, the genesis of something, the start of something, the beginning of something. It's a book of beginnings, and it's, it's such a vital book because really the rest of the Bible rests upon the pillars of truth that are established in this first book of the Bible. And, uh, and, and really the, 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 it's the pillar, it's the foundation of our faith. If Genesis isn't true, then then we're in trouble because it tells us who God is, it tells us where we came from, it tells us all of those things. And, And we've been going verse by verse, hitting every verse through the first six chapters. We find ourselves in chapter number six, where we finished last week is Noah. Noah had obeyed God and had built an ark. It it took him probably somewhere between 55 to 75 years of construction. That's quite a building project. And uh, when I first got here, Pastor Tomlinson, his first, I guess, he was here, he and his wife, for those that are new in our church, the pastor that preceded me, still members of our church, they faithfully serve and uh, started a missions ministry in in the 1040 window. And uh, for the first, I think, 15, 16, 17 years of his ministry, they had done no building here, no building project, no construction. And if you've ever been involved in construction, one thing I've learned, there are two things about it that I've learned. One, it always takes longer than you think, and two, it always costs more than you think. Whatever you thought at the beginning it was going to cost and how long it was going to take, anybody done a construction project around the house and you figured that out, it costs more than you think and it takes longer than you think. And Pastor Tomlinson, they had done no building, God had given this property and they had paid it off and, and they had done remodeling and things, but no, and then um, they built the academic building, which they dedicated in 2014 and the Sunday our family arrived seven years ago this month uh, was the dedication Sunday for the, the gymnasium building. And Pastor Tomlinson, from this passage, it talks about, we'll see it next week, uh, it talks about after the building project here, after Noah, um, that, that it shows that he got drunk. And Pastor Tomlinson said, I, I never drink alcohol, but after two building projects, I can see why Noah got drunk after his building project. But a, a fifth, just I guess a little pastor humor, I'm not sure that we should joke about that kind of stuff, but 55 to 75 years of, of, of a construction project. That's where we find ourselves. Noah has completed the ark. And we're finding ourselves in chapter number seven. We're going to pick it up. And this morning, uh, where we're at, there's a gigantic finished boat and thousands of animals being guided by God to make their way to this boat. 
And we're going to read two chapters together. That's why I told you to open up in God's Word. We're going to read two chapters together to begin, chapter 7 and chapter 8. And I guess it's all right if we come to church to, to read out of the Bible. Is that, I guess that's okay. And so we're going to read. You're going to need to follow along. If you're like me, sometimes I, I get a little distracted and, and really zone in. If you're following along um, uh, on a phone or a tablet, I'll be reading from the King James Version of the Bible. We're going to read responsively. So I'll read the first verse. I'm going to ask you to join me aloud on the second and so on until we're done with chapters 7 and 8. I may stop a couple of times along the way to add some commentary in here. Chapter 7, I'll begin in verse number 1. You join me on verse 2. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come, thou and all thy house, into the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. The original command back in chapters, uh, chapter 6 was two of every kind. And then we see God kind of a, a amending his instructions or maybe clarifying his instructions. And he says, seven of every clean beast. Well, why would that be? Why would he want more? Um, it, it's believed, one, because those would be the ones that would be offered in sacrifice to God. We're going to see at the end of chapter 8 in worship. And so if you only had two, one male and one female, and you get off the boat and you sacrifice one of them, you have just now made one, one kind of animal extinct. And so there was for the sacrifice. And then secondly, um, we see that after the flood, God says that man could and should begin to eat meat and use that for their sustenance. And so for those clean animals, the animals that would be um, good for them to eat, they would need more of those for the provision of the population. Verse number three, of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. Read it with me, will you? For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean beasts, and of beasts that are not clean and of fowls, and of everything that creepeth upon the earth. There went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. And the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights." So we see at the beginning, God tells Noah, get your family on the boat. We're about to have a flood. The family gets onto the boat. He says in seven days it's going to start. Seven days later, exactly what God says. And, and reading this and then even studying archaeology and some different things, um, it's believed that God poured out water both from above and below. The fountains of the deep opened up, and then God poured out the windows of heaven. And for 40 days, it was a, a rainstorm, 40 straight days, 40 nights. You, you know what happens around here and in other places when there's a heavy rainstorm for a few hours. All of a sudden we're getting, and that's with all of our infrastructure, we're getting flash flood warnings and, and trees down and power lines down and all of this damage, sometimes with just a few hours of a heavy storm. Imagine 40 days and 40 nights of nonstop uh, heavy storms. I don't know where we stopped. Where did we stop? Oh, verse 12. Verse 13. In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with him into the ark. They and every beast after his kind 
and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creep upon the earth after his kind, and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in, male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased, and bare up the ark, and it was lifted above the earth. And the waters prevailed. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail. And the mountains were covered. We saw last week that a cubit's about a foot and a half, middle of your finger, top of uh, your middle finger down to your elbow, depending on what country and what population, somewhere between 17 inches to 20 inches or so. So the water went about 25 feet deep above all of the, the highest point of land, where whatever hills or mountains there were, the entire earth was flooded. Verse, verse, number, uh, verse number 21, and all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle, of beasts, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth. So for 150 days, we sometimes think of 40 days and 40 nights, Noah got on a boat, went on a nice long cruise, 40 days, got off the boat. He was on the boat, we're going to see it here, and you can go and study. God makes it very clear. He's on, he's on this boat with his wife, his three uh, sons and their wives, eight of them, for over a year. They're on this boat. The water prevailed for 150 days. There was no dry land after the 40 days. And some people might say, you really believe that fairy tale? You think God flooded the entire world? Uh, I, I do. I believe that the Bible is true. I believe that God's Word is literal. And I do believe that this is not a children's story. I believe that this is an actual historic event that took place, and I would suggest to you that actually scientific records and archaeological finds confirm the truth of Genesis chapter number 7. And what we find here in Genesis 7 is that God, because man, God's creation had decided to do, as we saw last week, that which was right in their own eyes, had gotten all of their imaginations were only evil before the Lord continually. God, he said it grieved him, it repented him, he was sorry that he had made man, and he, he basically said, we're going to start again. And so he gave 120 years of mercy, 120 years of grace, and said, judgment's coming, turn to me, and only eight people on earth did. And, and we see God bring a flood, and, and we see that God, how did he get the animals there? God can do whatever he wants. God was in control. And, and you say, well, how could that work? And I talked to you last week. We visited a, a place in the Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, northern Kentucky border. It's called the Ark Encounter, and it talks about all of the scientific and, and historical data. It gives you all of the numbers of kinds of animals. Remember, some people will try to discount this story by counting up how many animals are in the world and saying, well, that's impossible. Number one, you you don't need any sea creatures because they all lived during the flood. You needed land animals and fowls, those that flew. Number two, it doesn't say every species of animal, it says every kind of animal. We have all kinds of different species or, or breeds of dogs. 
Uh, our, our house, we have this little doodle dog species that's three different breeds. And, and others here in our church have different bulldogs and this and that. That's all the same kind. That's after the same kind. Those are all dogs. You don't need to bring two golden doodles and two, two mini doodles and two Bernie doodles. And you don't have to bring all of those. Just bring two dogs, and then God will allow through the DNA, through just the creativity, the amazingness of God's creation. And so you you study that all out, and people much smarter than I have done that, they needed about 7,000 animals on that ark. And again, um, you go through, and with the dimensions that God gives, it is is very much not just some pie-in-the-sky fairy tale, even just humanly speaking, the logistics, the engineering, very much would have and could have happened in the size boat that God told Noah to build. And so what we find is Noah is on this ark with his, his family and with all of these animals. God has sent a great flood and water is prevailing. Let's jump into chapter number eight, do the same, and, and then we'll be really, I'll pull a couple of thoughts out of here, but we won't be reading anymore. And I appreciate you staying with us for a little more scripture up front than we normally would have. But the st- whole story kind of goes together. Chapter number eight, verse number one, I'll read it and you join me on verse two, please. And God remembered Noah and every living thing. Aren't you glad in the midst of judgment, God remembered Noah and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged, the fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of the 150 days, the waters were abated and the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. Also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. And she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto the ark. And he stayed yet other seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came into him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. And he stayed yet other seven days and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him any more. And it came to pass in the 600th and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the seventh and twentieth day of the month, was the earth dried. Isn't it interesting? Just a little intro. What do we view as really universal symbols of peace? An olive branch and a dove. Isn't that interesting? Where where do those things come from in our societies and in our cultures that God, he he sent forth a dove and this dove came back with an olive branch and then he sent it back out a week later. Well, first he came back with nothing and then he came back with an olive branch and then a week later he didn't come back at all. And so Noah said, okay, I guess we might be able to get off the boat. And he looked out and the ground was dry. Verse number uh, 15, and God spake unto Noah saying, would you join me in verse 16? Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth, every beast 
Every creeping thing, every fowl, whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast, and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Here we have the, the account of the, the flood of Noah's day. Last week, Noah's finished building the ark. This week, God says, get on the boat. In a week, there's going to be a storm coming. They get on the boat. The boat is, for a week, rain begins to come. Those that had mocked Noah, those that had, had made fun of him had to begin thinking, what, what's happening? Wow, it's, it's getting out. We're, our house just got flooded. We got to make it to some high ground. And when is this going to stop? And little by little, just imagine as animals, those that weren't on the ark, animals made their way to dry ground and high ground and people and the terror and the fear and God's judgment is poured out upon it. Now, by the way, not without mercy, but we have to make a choice. Are we going to accept God's mercy in our lives? or not. And they're on there, and, and then God, and the Bible says the Lord shut him in. God closes the door, the ark, a picture of salvation. Noah had followed God's plan and God's word for salvation, he and his family, and God shut them in, and the, the rains came and water from the fountains of the deep and from above, and for 40 days the earth was flooded to where the highest point on earth was, was covered by some 25 feet of water, and the entire earth is flooded, and all of these things happen, and then the water begins to abate, and over a year, Noah and his family are on this boat, and then they begin to come. And this account, these two chapters, they answer so many questions that seem to stump scientists and others regarding fossil accounts, regarding how, how do we get th this fossil that's this old and th this with our dating methods, and this fossil that's just this old, how do we get them dying right next to each other? How, how could that be? And how do we get this? It just seems like there was an animal there, and then all of a sudden, you'll see it with, the, they'll find fossils where it was clear they were like eating, and all of a sudden, they just suddenly died, and, and you have all of these things. And then things that don't make sense in the, in the sedentary records of the, the levels, this rock formation should be this old. Why is it above? this, and how could that have happened? So many things that seem to stump scientists and others regarding dating methods, age of the earth, how places like the Grand Canyon would be formed. These two chapters contain the answers to so many questions that people often have when they make strange and unique archaeological finds. But, but that's not what we're going to study this morning. I'm going to give you just a really simple thought. Do you know what kept hitting me as I read this passage in recent weeks in preparation for this series, and then this week reread it several times, and then studied it last week and this week. I, I'm usually studying a couple of weeks ahead and studying the, the Bible, and then cross-references in the Bible, and then commentaries, and reading different things. You know what kept hitting me? It really was a really simple truth that kept hitting me in chapter 7 and chapter 8, really four words. Four simple words that make up our message today. Fourteen letters seem to summarize the 46 verses that we just read. And here's my message this morning. As I read chapter 7 and 8, it's these four words. God is in control. I want to encourage you this morning with this truth. God is in. Now, for some that might actually discourage you because you want to be in control. 
But for those of us that want to be under the authority of God and want to be able to rest in Him, that's an encouraging thought. For those that want to go their own way and want life to be all about them, that can be a discouraging thought. But here's the reality. You know what 2020 taught all of us? We're not as in control as we thought we were. That schedule you had planned, that you had worked on so well, didn't really matter with one thing that was out of your control and out of my control. Those vacation plans we had planned, our daughter graduated from high school in 2020, we were going to go on our first cruise with, as a family. Guess what? We didn't go on our first cruise. We still haven't been on a cruise two years later. Why? We're not as in control as we think we are. One thing can happen outside of our control, and our entire lives can be turned upside down. As I read chapters 7 and 8, I was reminded over and over again, I studied and I sat in the story and I began to think about it and think about the different aspects and what was described. God is in control. In chapter 7 and 8, in a society that was out of control, God was in control. In a world that had lost its way, God was in control. At a time when every man was doing that which was right in his own eyes, God was still in control. When it seemed that evil had won and good, righteousness had lost, guess what? what? God was still in control. What do these two chapters remind us that God is in control of? I'm sure I could have pulled other things out, but I saw several things that these chapters remind us that God is in control of. Number one, I saw that God is in control of time. God is in control of time. He sits outside of space and time. I can't comprehend that with my finite mind, but God is in control of time. He is in control of when things happen. What do you see all throughout the account of Noah in in Genesis 6, 7, and 8? You see all kinds of time frames mentioned. 120 years, I'm going to bring judgment. Seven days from now, the flood's going to come. 40 days, I'm going to stop it at 40 days, and then it's going to take this long for it to come on. God was in control of the timing of when things happened all throughout this story. Guess what? But had, had the, the flood lasted a little too long, Noah possibly or one of his family members or some of the animals may have died. They may have run out of supplies. You can only stay in an enclosed space like that for so long based upon the supplies that you have. Now, I don't know that Noah would have died because they would have just had some more barbecue, like grilling different things, but some of those animals may have died if they had stayed on too long. And if they had not been on there long enough, guess what? God's plan would not have been fulfilled. The worldwide flood would not have accomplished its purpose. God is in control of time. The psalmist said it this way, my times are in thy hand. Psalm 31 verse 15, we want God to work on our timetable, don't we church? But God wants us to trust his timetable. I saw in this, these chapters, God is in control of time. I saw secondly, God is in control of seasons. You see it in verse number 22, the last verse we read, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God is in control not only of when things happen, but of how long these things last. He controlled the duration of the rain, the depth of the flood, the time, and he controlled the season they were in. And again, I want to stop here and give us a reminder that whatever you're going through right now is very likely a season of your life not your entire story. We, we do this thing as humans, whatever's right in front of us, that's everything. 
And whatever that season is, we view it as our whole story, and we can't imagine life beyond that season. And so it, cre- it can create either, man, everything is awesome, and then it's a big crash when that season ends, it's, if, it's a, if it's a good season, or when it's a bad season, everything's terrible, and we lose hope. We become hopelessness. We become hopeless. We become discouraged. We, become, we just become defeated. Why? Because it's a season. God is in control of seasons in our lives. Ecclesiastes, Solomon told us our lives are made up of seasons, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to dance and a time to mourn, a time to to eat, and a time to withhold from eating. There are these seasons of life, and you and I are not in control of those seasons. Have you ever had a season of life come upon you unexpectedly? A season of mourning you weren't expecting. Pastor Sammy mentioned a friend of ours that I, I, I was in college with as well, and I knew from college, Charlie Chim. Their family is in an unexpected season. They were on a family ride in their vehicle together, and their lives have now been completely changed. God is in control of seasons. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And can I just say this to each one of us? Don't quit or make unhealthy, unwise decisions during a difficult season. Remind yourself that this too shall pass. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. God is in control of seasons. You know what else I see in this passage? God is in control of justice. And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. Some might feel that God was too harsh in the timing and measure of his judgment on earth here. And others might say that he was too lenient. He gave them 120 years to continue in their sin for generations to get worse and worse and worse. And God was too lenient. Here's the reality. You and I aren't in charge of justice. We're not in charge of those, the timing of those things. God is, and we see that here, that God meted out his justice and his judgment on his timetable. God is in control of life. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Church family, God is the author of life. He's the giver of life. He's the sustainer of life. It's why we have no right to take a life. Whether it be murder, we have no right to take a life, euthanasia, abortion, whatever it might be, God is the giver of life. He is in control of life, and yes, also God is in control of death. We see that in this passage. It is appointed, Hebrews says, unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. For all of us, God knows our birth date, and he knows our death date. We're not in control of those things. It's not ours to decide, it's God. We should rest in that. And God, here we see, he was in control of life. He kept animals alive and he kept the human race alive, but he was also in control of death in this passage. God is in control of salvation. He chose the ark as the method for mankind to be saved in Genesis. And he chose the cross as the method for mankind to be saved at Calvary. God is in control of salvation. We want, in our society, we want, we get lifted up in our own wisdom, and we want to say, well, all roads lead to this, and I'm good here, and I'm going the Baptist way, or I'm going the Catholic way, or I'm going the Buddhist way, or I'm going the Muslim way, I'm going the atheist way. We're all going to get there as long as we do our best. That sounds real good to a humanistic mind. The only problem is there's no basis in truth. 
And if God is real, and if, if God did create all of this, and if this is his word, he made it very clear. He was in this passage in control of salvation. You don't get to earn it. You don't get to buy it. There's no good works that you do for it. You have to trust him by faith, take him at his word, and walk into his ark by one door. There was only one door into the ark. All of these things, the New Testament tells us this, all of these things were pictures of Jesus Christ, of the salvation that God would offer. The ark was a picture of salvation. The door, a picture of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the door. Jesus said in John 14, 6, uh, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Well, she was a sincere person. He, he did his best. He worked really hard. He gave, gave a lot of money to the Baptist church. None of those things are going to get us into heaven. It is the door of Jesus into the ark of God's salvation that will lead us to eternal life with him. God is in control of salvation. He chose the ark in Genesis. He chose the cross in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Seventh, I see in this passage, God is in control of the climate. By the breath of God, Job said, frost is given, and the breadth of the waters is straightened, and also by watering he wearieth the thick cloud. He scattereth his bright cloud. It is turned round about by his counsels, that they may do whatsoever he commandeth upon them, uh, them upon the face of the earth, of the, of the face of the world in the earth. He causeth it to come, whether for correction, or for his land, or for mercy. Do you know that God, at times in the Bible, rain was a picture of God's abundant blessing? And at times here in this passage, rain was a picture of God's great judgment. God used rain to, when they were in drought, and they, rain was, was an answer to prayer, a sign of his blessing. Guess what? What that means? God uses these things for his purposes as he wills. He's in control. And isn't it interesting, the farther we get away from God as a society, the more lifted up in pride that we get, and we start to think that we can, we're in charge of the climate. I'm not against recycling. We have a recycle bin on the side of our house, and we throw our, our cardboard in there and whatever in there. I'm not against that. But, but, but me recycling my, my Cheerios box is not going to stop whatever's happening on this earth. We start thinking that we're in charge of, of, and it's interesting, you go back and study it, you look in the 70s, you'll see articles, multiple articles in mainstream publications talking about the fact that the world was cooling at an alarming rate. And we're scared of what's coming because the world is cooling. And then about 20, 25 years later, what was the, the big alarm? It was global what? Global warming. And the world is warming at an alarming rate. And now we stop calling it global warming and we just call it climate what? Climate change because we don't know what it's doing. We just know it's cooling and it's warming and it's changing and we got to be really worried about it and we need to put a whole lot of restrictions and taxes on Americans even though there are billions of people living in other countries that I've traveled to that care nothing about any of this. They're not smog checking any of their vehicles. They're not driving any electric vehicles. They're not doing any, what I'm doing, and again, I'm not against you having an electric vehicle uh, or a hybrid. I may look for one for my next one just for a financial reason, but you're not having some major earth conserving effect because you bought a Prius. God is in control of the climate. And you know what the Bible, the one thing we're promised about the climate, here's the one thing we're promised, that at one point all of this is going to melt with a fervent heat. God's judgment will be poured out. Again, I'm not talking about misusing the earth. God said we're stewards of the gift of creation that he's given us. I am talking about, be careful about getting lifted up in pride, thinking that, that, that we're in control of all of this. We're in control of the climate. God ha always has been and always will be in control of those things. I see number eight, God is in control of humanity. 
Ephesians says, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. God, in this passage, he was in control of humanity. Number nine, God is in control of the animal world. And out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And he has placed animals under the dominion of man. I'm going to say that again. In Genesis, he has placed animals not to abuse. The Bible talks about don't abuse animals. Don't mistreat animals. If you have an animal that you use for work, and and they call it in the Bible a beast, and you have a beast that helps you plow your your fields or helps you with transportation, you ought to care for your animal. It's, It's God's creation. We ought not be abusing it, but we also ought not be worshiping it. The Bible says one of the signs of getting away from God is that we worship and serve the creature more than the creator. And if we're not careful in our society, there are sections in American society that they place more value on unborn animal lives than they do on unborn human lives. That goes against Scripture. God is in control of all of these things of of the animal world, and he placed them for our, God created animals for man, not the other way around. Number 10, God, we having fun yet? God is in control of earthly kingdom. I, I really wanted this to be an encouraging message. I hope it is. I'm not trying to be, I'm really not trying to be controversial, but our culture spits in so much truth of the, of the face of the truth of God's word. Number 10, God is in control of earthly kingdoms. You know, the most powerful people on earth in Noah's day, the most, the most wealthy, the most beautiful palaces, the, the most respected, feared men on earth, they were no match for God's power. The Bible says in Proverbs, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. And this is a good reminder for Christians sometimes as well, because sometimes we can get really upset and really scared and really fearful based on what's happening with earthly kingdoms and what's going on at this summit. And I heard this from the UN and the Democrats said this and the Republicans said that and Governor Newsom said this and oh my, what's going to happen? And God's in control of earthly kingdoms. The Christian, now we ought to be salt and light in the political arena. We ought to vote based on biblical principles. We can be informed and we can have opinions, but Christian, you need to rest in the sovereignty and the providence of God. Do what you can in your world to share light, to share truth with those around you, and don't go to bed worried about what you saw on MSNBC or Fox News or CNN. God is in control of earthly kingdoms. It's, again, it's not wrong to be informed and be involved as Christians in those arenas, but ultimately God can use all of those, the ones we like and the ones we don't, for his plan and his purposes. Number 11, what do I see in these two passages? God is in control of the population. How many of you ever heard, heard said as a parent or heard one of your parents say, I brought you into this world? Sounds like you've said that before. And what? I can What? I can take you out. This chapter is the literal example of that happening. God did exactly that. I brought you into this world, and I'm going to take you out because of the way that you've, you've lived before me. God literally did that. We, again, we get worried about population control and birth rates and overcrowding and food supplies. Here's the reality. All that worrying isn't going to accomplish anything. God is in control of it all. And then lastly, God is in control of judgment, when and how it comes. It says in Revelation chapter number 20, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. 
And I saw the dead, all of us that lived on earth, those that had died, small and great, important, unimportant, old and young, stand before God. All of us one day, church, will stand before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Church family, there is coming a day of judgment for everyone that has ever walked on this earth according to the Bible. And you say, that sounds scary. It sounds like you have a really mean, unkind, judgmental God. Oh, we have the most loving, kind, gracious, merciful God, but He is a God of righteousness, and He is a God of holiness, and He is a God of justice, and there's coming a day that we will stand before Him, and that doesn't, yes, there are works will be judged, but not whether or not, that's not going to determine whether or not we get into heaven. It's, is your name written in the book of life? Have you made it into the ark? You know those that made it through the flood of God's judgment in Genesis were those that took him at his word and walked onto the ark through the one door. And you know those who will make it to, to, through the, the, the judgment of God at the judgment seat of Christ? You know those who will make it there? Those who will walk into the ark through the one door of Jesus Christ, whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. What am I trying to remind you of this morning? I pulled 12 thoughts from there, and I, I probably could have pulled more. As I just sat in that passage, here's the four words, God is in control. What I want you to leave this morning thinking about, God is in control. That's what I see in Genesis chapter number seven and eight. Would you say those four words aloud with me? God is in control. One more time. What is that thing that has you defeated? Disillusioned, discouraged, exasperated, hopeless, depressed. We need to be reminded God is in control. And I'm going to wrap it up. Here's the application. That's the truth. Here's the application. What should that truth that God is in control lead to in our lives? Number one, it should lead us to repentance. The fact that God is in control should lead us to repentance. Do you see Genesis 7, the first part of verse 1, the first verse we read? And the Lord said unto Noah, come thou and all thy house into the ark. What is he saying? Turn from man's wisdom, follow my wisdom, turn from your sin, turn to God like Noah, follow him into the ark of salvation. God gave the world's population 120 years to repent. They chose their own way instead. If God is really in control of all of this, if God is in control of, of what's happening in our world, and of life, and of death, and of salvation, and of the animal world, and of humanity, and if God is in control of all of these things, and yes, He allows us free will, and He allows men to make decisions, and He allows consequences to sin, but there comes a time and a place where God says, here's where I step in. If all of that is true, what should it lead us to in our lives? It should lead us to repentance. Repentance is a change of mind, a change of direction. I'm going to stop going my way, and I'm going to go his way. 
I'm going to stop following my wisdom, and I'm going to follow his wisdom. I'm going to stop trying to work my way there. I'm going to allow his finished work to get me there. I'm going to stop trying to figure it out for myself. I'm going to stop going to the internet to find all my answers for life. I'm going to start going to the Word of God to find my answers for life. If God is in control, it should lead us to repentance, to a changed mind, to a changed life. Follow him and his plan for salvation. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as Savior, don't wait another day because we're not promised another day. What should it lead us to, Christian, if God is in control? Should it lead us to repentance? I would say, secondly, it should lead us to relief. Verse number seven, and Noah went in, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. They didn't know exactly what was coming, but they knew they were safe because they were following God. Here, believer, here's the thought. If God is in control, If we believe his word is true, if we're in the ark, we might not know what's going to happen, but it should lead us to know we're safe. We're protected. It should lead us to rest in him. It should lead to a relief, a rest, a peace for the people of God. Rest in the ark. No matter what storms are raging outside, Noah's family could rest knowing they were protected by Almighty God. No matter what was happening, rest in the promises of His Word. No matter how bad things around you look, rest in His goodness, in His grace, in His power, and in His wisdom. Children of God should not be in a constant state of fear and anxiety. God's spirit and God's sovereignty should lead to a peace that passes all understanding. That doesn't mean there aren't times of tears. That doesn't mean there aren't times of doubts because we're human. That doesn't mean there aren't times of questions and there aren't times of hurts. It doesn't mean that. What it does mean is that in those times, we have a peace that passes understanding. It doesn't make sense to those around us. Why? Because we don't know how long the storm's going to go. We don't know all the things, it's, what it's going to look like. We don't know what it's going to do. But we know we're safe in the arms of God. And that should bring a relief, a rest, a peace. If God really is in control, what should that lead to in our lives? Repentance and relief. And number three, righteousness. Back to verse number one, the first verse we read, the second half of it, he says, For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. If the Bible is true, if God is real, If we really believe that he's in control of all of this, it should change. I I would dare say it will change if we really believe it. Because here's the reality. Your behavior, your behavior reveals your belief. You, You can say you believe anything. Show me how you live, and I'll tell you what you believe. You would say that to your kids, wouldn't you? Oh, I love you, Mom. I love you, Dad. Show me. The actions you're showing me don't don't really show that you really love me. The way you're treating me and the respect and the disrespect and whatever it might be, our behaviors reveal our beliefs. And if we really believe, it will change the ways that we live. It will change our priorities. We won't be so enamored by the world. We want, like Noah, we'll be focused on the task before us, not worried about what everybody around us is doing. We won't be so enamored by the selfish pleasures and earthly gain, the customs and fashions and approval of the world will pale in comparison to the holiness and approval and smile of God in our lives. We won't live in light of the opinion of friends or foes. We'll live in light of the reality of God. And lastly, what do we see in this passage that that truth that God's in control should lead to? Number four, a reverence. Look at the last last couple verses we read, the end of chapter eight, please, and we're done. Chapter number eight, look at verse number 20. What was the first thing Noah did 
after God had saved him and his family. Verse 20, would you read it aloud with me? Chapter 8, verse number 20. Ready? Begin. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And notice this, the Lord received it. He smelled a sweet savor. The Lord received that. Noah built an ark, but you know what he also built? He built an altar. Well, he did a work for God, but it wasn't just work. He also had great worship for God. Reverence. If God is really in control, it's going to lead us to bring, to, to sacrifice for him, to, to, to give our lives as a living sacrifice, to worship him with all that we have. What did Noah have? What were his earthly possessions when he got off that boat? Whatever clothes he took on and those animals. And what did he do? He took of those earthly possessions and said, God, we as a family want to recognize you and we worship you for your goodness in our lives. If God is really in control, it's going to lead us to repentance. We're going to, we're, there's going to be some changes in our lives, a change of mind. We're going to follow him into the ark, not follow man's wisdom. It's going to lead to a relief. Not, not that we don't care. It's not an apathy about the goings-on of the world, but it's, 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 we're, we're citizens of another country. It's a, it's a different perspective. Yes, I care what happens in America. Yes, I want to vote for and stand for biblical truth and vote based on biblical principles. And I want to vote for candidates that most closely align with Scripture. Yes, yes, yes. But if that candidate loses, I'm not going to lose any sleep because I'm called. It doesn't change my calling as a Christian, whoever's in Sacramento or whoever's in Washington, D.C. It doesn't change it. My calling as a Christian is the same. It's not based on U.S. elections. And so it brings a relief, a rest, a peace that passes understanding. Why? Because God's in control. It's going to lead to repentance. It'll lead to relief or rest. It will lead us to righteousness. It will change the way we live. And then it'll lead to a reverence. God, you've saved me. I want the rest of my life to be about worshiping you, bringing honor to you, bringing praise to you, bringing glory to you. So here's my challenge. Noah recognized that God was in control. What about you? You've trusted him for salvation. Do you trust him with the rest of your life? Noah, let that lead to repentance. What about you? If God's in control of all of this, of heaven, of hell, of earth, of life, of death, are you following his way? Have you ever been saved? Do you know Christ as Savior? Noah, let it lead him to repentance. What about you? Noah, let it lead to a relief, a rest. What about you? Noah, let it lead to righteousness. What about you and what about me? Noah, let it lead to reverence. What about us? Church family, the story of the flood, we probably could have gone a few different directions, a few different angles in this passage, but the thought, the overwhelming thought that kept hitting me as I read it. Four words. Would you say them aloud with me? Ready? Begin. God is in. God is in control. Rest in that this week and let it change you. Let it change. You get, you get news at work you weren't expecting this week. God is in control. God, you're working in my life. You get news from a doctor this week that you don't really like. God, I trust that you're in control. And I'm going to let that change me. I'm going to let it give me a peace that passes understanding. I'm going to let your word guide my heart, my thoughts, my actions. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.